Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott, Chapter Twelve. How Cordelia learned the truth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Don Sutton. Saturday night's dance was a real dance. A dance to please the dancingest and thirstiest dancers. The guests, accustomed to the gaiety, even the abandon of weekend parties, were soon bent upon making this the gayest of the season. To this spirited abandon, they were incited partially by the music, which was a smiling, gurgling, swaying Negro orchestra, and partially by the plenitude and potency of the punch, champagne, and whiskey. Gladys, knowing what would be expected from one who intended to be a popular hostess all her life, had on her return from France laid in a forty-year supply of wines and liquors while buying was still legal. Cordelia tried to hold herself in abeyance. This was Gladys's party, and she wished Gladys to have the pleasure and the credit that are properly the hostess's. But she could not help it that she was more in demand as a partner than any other woman. Always it had been so, and secretly she gloried in this popularity, else she would have been something other than her sex. Whenever there was a dispute among claimants for a dance, she invariably gave her favor to Mr. Franklin. He was her guest, and then a further reason was that choosing a neutral, an outsider, would excite the least jealousy among her men friends, and so she found that a third of her dances were with Franklin, who, to her surprise, proved to be one of the best dancers in the party. This man could apparently do everything. She had a few dances with Kyle Brandon. As before, he talked with enthusiasm of her possibilities as a great motion picture star. Also, he told her he was now getting busy on that pageant to be given at his aunt's Miss Phipps Morse. It was going to a big thing, the biggest of its kind ever attempted and Cordelia's part was looking bigger and better every hour he thought it over. She was going to like the part. Just wait and see. Despite all her seeming carefree gaiety, Cordelia took in everything that was happening. She noted with a stab of jealousy that Gladys's most frequent partner was Jerry Plimpton. As for herself... She had not once danced with Jerry. Well, that was just as she had planned it. And her eyes went inevitably to Mitchell, presiding imperturbably over the servants at the buffet, or moving with his butler's perfect impersonality among the hilarious guests. Again and again the thought shivered through her. What would this smart crowd think and do if that carved expressionless face should suddenly alter and he should drop into their joyous midst 
the bomb of what she guessed to be the truth. But the most persistent, most enduring merrymakers eventually grow weary, even when stimulated by wine more precious than diamonds and rubies. By four o'clock, half of the guests were in their beds, and the crowd was rapidly dwindling. Though the grinning, singing negroes twanged guitars and blew into saxophones with an unabated vigor which suggested that they could maintain their musical pace until old Mars Gabriel sounded his clarion signal for them to drop these instruments and take up harps of gold. Not until this hour did Cornelia have her first dance with Jerry Plimpton, which she told him was to be her last for the night. And as they danced, she noticed that Gladys was swaying in the arms of Franklin. Let's have a bit of fresh air before you go up, Jerry remarked when the dance was concluded, and on Cordelia's acceding, he led her out upon the porch and over to a shadowed corner. Neither was conscious that Gladys and Franklin had also stepped forth, apparently with the same desire for air. Nor, for that matter, did any of the four know that the cautious, ubiquitous Mitchell was watching every move of them all. Now I've got you here, and you've got to listen to me, Cordy, Jerry grumbled reprovingly. Why have you been dodging me the whole evening? Have I been dodging you? In that very answer, you try to dodge me again. Till just now, you haven't danced with me once. Each time I asked you, you had all the next dances promised. What was the grand idea in treating me just as if I wasn't here? It gave you all the more chance to pay your respects to your hostess. Oh, Gladys can go to... He checked himself. You're not going to get away with a thing like this without paying for it. And a big penalty. What, for instance? I'll let you pay in installments. The first installment is... I'm going to kiss you. You've drunk too much, Jerry. Don't be a fool. I'd sure be a fool if I didn't. He slipped his arms about her and kissed her. This was far from being the first time Cordelia had been kissed, and she neither felt surprised nor did she pretend resistance. Also, she recognized instantly that Jerry's kiss was not that of a driving love, and she felt no lifting thrill. Rather, it was the semi-maudlin sentimental kiss that has for its inception equal parts of titillating music, alcohol, and languorous summer darkness. Jerry could undoubtedly be the serious lover, but he was not the serious lover now, and wisdom cautioned her against letting his sentimentality sweep onward into temporary fervor. She loosed his embrace and moved a pace from him. You've had too much punch, Jerry. Behave. Let's go in now. I want to go to bed. Not till you pay another installment. He kissed her again. Then she strolled back in, and a minute later, Cordelia 
was on her way to her room. Franklin and Gladys had seen, in shadowy silhouette, the embracing kisses, but had not heard the whispered words, and so did not know the rather tepid quality of the dalliance. Franklin felt Gladys' fingers bite into his arm, and that clutch violently affirmed all that his watchfulness during the evening had told him. For his own part, what the kissing suggested suited him no better than it did Gladys. But he controlled his wits. He perceived that, in one respect, at least the girl beside him was an ally. I presume those two are engaged, he murmured softly, and with subtle purpose after Cordelia and Jerry had gone in. She, she told me there was nothing between them, Gladys returned, speaking with greatest difficulty. I'm sure they must be engaged, he insisted in his soft, even voice. I said as much to myself when I saw them at lunch at the Grantham the other day. He should have seen their manner to each other. There is no mistaking its meaning. They are undoubtedly engaged, and for some reason are hiding it for the present. Excuse me, Gladys choked out and was gone. Franklin was satisfied. He had handled the situation very skillfully. He had put a spoke into that wheel. He had indeed but even the very clever Mr. Franklin was hardly clever enough to foresee just how that spoke was going to affect the running gear of his own very complicated plans. Cordelia had been in a room no more than a moment, and before starting to undress was before her long mirror for a final appraisal of how she had looked during the evening when her door was violently opened as violently closed, and there stood Gladys, her white bosom heaving spasmodically, her green eyes blazing with wild accusation and mad hatred. Gladys, what on earth is the matter with you? Cordelia exclaimed. Gladys came toward her, body tensely bent, fingers crooked like talons, you liar, you, she shrilled gaspingly. You, you dirty liar. Cordelia stiffened, and a dangerous look came into her own eyes. What's this about, she demanded sharply. Oh, you damn sneaking liar, screamed Gladys. Are you crazy? Do you want all your guests to hear you? If you've got anything to say, at least lower your voice. Let them hear me. I'd like nothing better than to have them know the truth about you, the sort you are. There was, however, little likelihood of the guests hearing even this shrill, defiant voice, for the rooms of Cordelia, Gladys, and Esther were side by side at the front of the house, and the guest rooms were all in the wings and to reach these rooms the guests did not have to pass through the part of the house where Gladys and Cordelia now faced each other. Nevertheless, Gladys' fortissimo of anger had in her last words subsided to a less penetrating tone. Out with it quick, ordered Cordelia angrily. What are you trying to say? 
as if you didn't know. I saw you kissing him, kissing Jerry Plimpton. So that's it. What's that to you? What's it to me? Why, why kissing him after you told me he was nothing to you? After you had promised not to interfere between him and me? Why, why, oh, I could kill you, you rat. Gladys's face twisted and writhed with the vehemence of unlovely passion. All that was primitive, elemental, childishly and savagely direct in her undisciplined selfishness now ruled her utterly. She felt no shame, no reticence, no restraint due to the mere habits of civilized manners. She was just an uncontrollable flame of mad egotism. Cordelia herself had never been more angry. She had come here to try to save this girl. Why, Gladys didn't deserve saving. But before Cordelia's temper escaped its leash, there flashed upon her partial remembrance of the inspiration she had had the other day in the child's playhouse. If she could only make Gladys lose all control, either in anger or fear. At this moment, Cordelia was conscious of no clear plan, but she proceeded exactly as if guided by one. Her manner was angry, but her anger was assumed. Also, her manner was taunting. Why shouldn't I kiss Jerry? Jerry seemed to like it. And what makes you so angry? Because Jerry didn't prefer to kiss you? Get out of my house, you hear me? Get out of my house, you cheap flirt! Kissing like a cheap shop girl on a park bench. At least, Gladys, dear, Jerry chose to kiss me and not you. It was an unseemly, unsightly quarrel between the star graduates of fine old Harcourt Hall. Gladys grew yet more wild. Jerry didn't choose. You made him. You're trying to coax him away with your kisses. You're after his money. Everybody knows you've got barely enough to live on, and that's all. All you've really got is an empty name, and a few good looks, and a cheap popularity, and a scheming head, and you're scheming to get Jerry's money. At this, Cordelia could barely hold herself in. Perhaps it was the element of truth in Gladys's words that so inflamed her, but the growing anger she showed was still directed, acted towards a purpose. She looked as if she were upon the instant of exploding. What have you got, you poor ninny? Not a thing but money. You admit I have family, looks, popularity, a good head, and you haven't a thing but money. That's the only way you'll ever get a man's attention, buying it with your money. Cordelia had tried to say something which would rouse Gladys to the last limits of her anger. She could have chosen no greater insult. Get out of my house. Pack your things this minute. Get out. And you think you can buy Jerry Plimpton with your money? The only thing you have to attract a man? When money is the last thing in a woman that would interest Jerry Plimpton, 
You poor fool! Why, you know Jerry will never. You shut up! Gladys' voice was an almost animal-like snarl. You get out of my house! Get out! You lie! I'll show you which of us is the fool. I'll show you whether I can interest Jerry. I'll show it to you by being married to him inside of a year. Her panting voice cracked in its rage. She was utterly gone, utterly lost. Cordelia's moment was come, and swiftly she struck. You think Jerry Plimpton will marry you? Marry you? After you told him Francois is your child? Your illegitimate child? The devastating Gladys swayed back. Her flaming rage was gone as a candle but had suddenly blown out. Her tense figure loosed as though it were about to collapse. Her vivid features became gray and gaped and twisted with idiot looseness. Her green eyes now blinked with stupefying fear and horror. How, how did you find it out? She finally asked in a choked whisper. I was told. But they all promised they would never tell. The next moment, Gladys was abjectly clutching Cordelia, wildly pawing her, pouring out a frantic jumble of words. You must never tell, Cordelia. Promise me you'll never tell, please, for God's sake. It would ruin me. I couldn't stand it. And I don't deserve it. I'll do anything you ask me to. I'll give you anything, anything. Please, for God's sake. The very sight of this cringing, cowering creature, the instant before, so arrogantly insulting, made Cordelia feel sick. She wanted to throw up those clutching hands, close her eyes against that slavering face. But before she could reply to Gladys, Gladys had entered a new phase. It's all a lie, Cordelia. He is not my child. I swear it. He's Esther's. They put it on me to shield her. To shield her. Just because by accusing me and threatening me, they can make me pay money. I even have to pay Esther. It's the God's truth. I swear it. You believe me, Cordelia? Of course you believe me. Cordelia pulled away from the hands that had alternately clutched and imploringly patted her. Don't lie like that. It's not a lie. It's the God's truth, Cordelia. It's the God's truth. I swear it. There was a knock at Cordelia's door. Again, Gladys was clinging to Cordelia, whispering frantically. Don't make a sound. Don't answer. Come in, Cordelia called. The door opened and Esther entered wearing a dressing gown. I thought I heard Gladys in a temper at you, Cordelia, and I thought I'd better come in and stop her, Esther said. And then with surprise she noted the attitude of the pair, Gladys imploringly holding to Cordelia. Why this sudden change? What's it all been about? Don't say a word, Cordelia, Gladys gasped quickly. Please, 
I never told that before to anybody, and I'll never let it go any further. Not a word, please, for Esther's sake. What is it? Esther demanded sharply. Cordelia's reply was drawn from her not alone by Esther's question. She saw in this new development of the situation her opportunity to learn yet more of the truth. I had learned that Gladys was the mother of Francois and told her so. She was just denying it and was saying you were his mother. Esther Cross took Gladys by one shoulder and looked squarely and sternly into the frightened face for a long moment. Gladys's gaze wavered and fell. I, I lost my head. Gladys stammered in a whisper. It's, it's true about me, Cordelia. Esther loosed her hold upon her stepsister and turned to Cordelia. How did you learn of this? Cordelia had had her answer prepared these many days, and it came out with convincing simplicity, and in a manner to awaken no suspicion that all this might be the result of preparation part of a great plan. I told Gladys that someone had told me. That was not true. I was angry when I said it. The fact merely is that I had noted a likeness between Gladys and Francois, and the possibility had popped into my head. A while ago, Gladys came in here and was very insulting. I completely lost my temper and struck back by accusing her of being Francois's mother. She admitted it. With me, the whole thing was just a shot in the dark that chanced to strike the target. That's all there is to it, and I'm very sorry that I lost my temper. Cordelia perceived that her explanation had entirely convinced the two. Again, Gladys was eagerly fawning upon her. It's not so bad as you think, Cordelia. You know, only the worst. It's not fair to me to have you think the worst of me. And since you know the worst, I want you to know all of it. Then you'll see that I'm not really to blame. That luck's been unfair to me all the way through. Listen, I'll tell you the whole story. But just then, soft steps were heard crossing the room. The three women whirled about. Coming towards them was Mitchell. He had entered and closed the door so noiselessly that they had not guessed his presence. "'What are you doing here?' Esther demanded sharply. Cordelia had long been wanting to see the butler's face when it would not be the face of the butler. She again had her wish. The face was keen and smiling, with the cool, easy, ironical good humor of one who feels himself the thorough master. In this unmasking smile, in this room, Mitchell, which Cordelia felt she was glimpsing for the first time, there was nothing brutal, nothing vulgar, nothing menacing. A villain and a devil, undoubtedly, Cordelia thought, but a gentlemanly devil. I'm here, Esther, my dear, Mitchell answered with bland pleasantry. Because I happened to be watching our darling Gladys, and I saw the look on her dear face as she followed Miss Marlowe upstairs. That look made me fear that something was due to happen which might possibly concern me. So I followed Gladys. 
and you will all excuse me, I am sure, for you will admit that a gentleman must be prepared to protect his name and his interests, and I listened outside the door. I heard all that was said, for the singing voice of our Gladys has a caring quality that has been equaled only by Madame Sembrick in her voiciest days. I heard Esther stirring in her room. I got out of sight. I saw her come in here. I decided the party would not be complete without me, and entered just behind her. Is my explanation sufficiently adequate, dear Esther? You will leave us this instant. I'm sorry to appear disobliging to you, Esther, particularly since, as you know, I admire you so thoroughly, and since you and I have really always gotten on very well together, but I must remain. I have business in this company. You get out of here, snapped Gladys in her choking scream. Get out! Rachel regarded her with sober, rebuking face. Gladys, I've often told you that I feared I'd be compelled to turn you across my knee and spank you. Unless you compose yourself, I shall have to conduct that somewhat intimate ceremony before the eyes of the present assemblage. She glowered at him furiously, but held her tongue. I shall remain, Mitchell continued, because I overheard that our little story was to be told in full to Miss Marlowe. I feel that it is my right to be present to check up on the details which concern me, and to see that I am not slandered. Cordelia, her interest in the story racing ahead, could no longer hold back the surmise which had been with her these many days. I already know your part. You are Francois's father. I have seen how fond you are of him. Mitchell turned on her a pained, reproachful look. You are correct about my being very fond of Francois, Miss Marlowe. And at that moment she felt all doubts of the sincerity of his affection for the boy vanish. But really now, aren't you rather unjust to me when you think that I would choose such a person as Gladys to be the mother of my child? You, you choked Gladys. Careful, Gladys, careful. Remember your weak heart, and don't forget the dangers of apoplexy. Shall we get along with our history? It's a long story, and I'm sure we will endure it better if we are seated. He drew chairs together, not with his manner of a butler and automaton, but with smiling, ornate courtesy that was seasoned with mockery. Mockery, which Cordelia sensed, was directed chiefly at Gladys. Cordelia could not keep her eyes off his smiling face. She did not know what to make of the man. But somehow she felt growing in her a tentative, dubious liking for him, even though he did seem an undoubted scoundrel. And now that we are all comfortable and cozy, continued the easy, pleasant voice of Mitchell, let's unfold our tale. End of chapter 12